0: Would you pray with me? Dear Father, as we open your word, we pray that you will illumine our minds, give us wisdom, and draw us closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like you're not good enough? I'm afraid... So many people very often feel like they are not good enough. And we need, I believe, to understand and emphasize something far more than we do. And that is the all-sufficient mediation of Jesus Christ. Without Christ's mediation, we are utterly and hopelessly lost. So imagine with me, if you would that it's early in the morning on my birthday, long before I wish to get out of bed, and I feel a bounce on the mattress. And there's my son, not yet two, he's older now, not yet two, and pulling on my sleeve and he squeals, happy birthday, dad. And he holds out to me a poorly wrapped package in his hands. Then imagine that I say to him, Joel... I don't care about your gift. There is nothing you could give me that I couldn't get for myself. In fact, whatever you are giving me, I actually paid for. You're not really giving me anything at all. You might as well keep your gift. I don't need it, nor do I want it. Now, I would never say that to my son, just just for the record. But what would you think of me if I did? That's, that's cold. That's heartless, right? Do you think that God views the gifts or offerings that we bring to him in this way? After all, what does God lack? Everything belongs to him, right? How do you give God a gift when he has everything? Add to that my sinfulness, my unworthiness. Could God ever really be pleased with me, even me? Can God take pleasure in us? Well, many passages teach that he can and he does. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Now notice here the fact that God takes pleasure in his people does not mean that everything always goes well for God's people. We know the story of Job. We can read the book of Ecclesiastes. And Jesus himself tells us in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. So please, don't ever confuse tribulation or trouble with divine disfavor. If you're in a relationship with God, the enemy will throw everything at you that he's got. But whatever happens in this world, there is nothing that can take you out of God's hand. Nothing, Paul writes, can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that God has for us and the delight that he wants to take in his people is deeper and wider than we could ever possibly understand. There are many examples of the pleasure that God takes in His people. One is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse five. It says, "By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Don't you want to be pleasing to God? And in Zephaniah 3:17, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This verse speaks to that day when God and his people will be reunited, when he looks on the redeemed. And it says, he will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. You know, in that little verse, Packed into that little verse, there's just about every single word that the Hebrew language has for joy and delight. Every single one there is a different word, just, just trying to illustrate just how exuberant God's delight will be on that day. And it says, he will be quiet in his love. Have you ever been speechless by beholding something beautiful or something Amazing. Apparently, God looks forward with eager anticipation to the day when he can look at you, and he can look at me, and he can look at all of his people, and we take his breath away. All throughout Scripture, we find instances where God either wants to take pleasure in his people or actually does delight in his people. But that raises a question, what pleases God? in what does god delight and here is where the problem comes in for many of us because we know we know i'm not good enough right i'm not good enough proverbs 15:8 through 9 says the way of the wicked is an abomination to the lord but he loves the one who pursues righteousness proverbs 11:20 adds the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. And Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord loves the righteous. Well, now we have a problem, don't we? Because how many of us are righteous? How many? No one. No one is righteous, not even one. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, sometimes we stumble over this. I'm not that bad after all, right? I mean, compared to that that guy over there, I'm doing okay. But imagine for just a moment, if you would, that LeBron James and I are involved in a jumping competition. He leaps, he dunks, and then I, well, I hop a few inches off the ground. Is there a big difference between LeBron James and me when it comes to leaping ability? There's a huge difference, right? His vertical leap is uh, reportedly 40 inches, and mine is well, not nearly that much. (laughs) I won't ask you to take a guess. But imagine that we're actually both trying to touch the moon, nearly 240,000 miles away. The difference in our leaping ability, then, is minuscule, right, by comparison. Now, that's a bit, a little bit, like us trying to be perfect, like Christ, in our own strength. It is beyond our ability, completely beyond our ability. And you might think that someone is far ahead of you. Or perhaps that you're far ahead of someone else. But we're basically all in the same boat if we're being honest with ourselves. We can't be like Christ simply by our efforts. All my righteousness is filthy rags. So if God loves the righteous, and he does, but no one is righteous, whom does God love? Taken one step further, if God loves the righteous... How can he love me? I know that I am not righteous. Do you ever feel like you're not good enough? That can be very discouraging, right? Very discouraging. In fact, it's very easy to look at our shortcomings, and we know them better than anyone, and think, I'm not really worth anything at all. How could I ever be pleasing to God? It's not even worth trying. This is one of the enemy's biggest lies, and please don't believe it. It's true that I am unworthy, but it is not true that I am worthless. How much did Christ pay for us? How much was he willing to give for us? What price would you put? on what Christ gave for us. An infinite price, right? Infinite price. Then you and I are of infinite value. We are not worthless. We are priceless. Ellen White, in her classic book, The Desire of Ages, she wrote, God desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. God wanted them. God wanted you else he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to redeem you. This means not only are you valuable, supremely valuable, but so is that person that you might despise in your heart right now. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables about joy in heaven. Many of you know them well. Luke 15, beginning in verse 4. And Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Does God himself rejoice over a sinner that was lost and is now found? Does it bring God pleasure when we return to him? Of course it does. Then in verse 8, Jesus tells the second one. Or what woman, he says, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And sometimes I can't help but wonder what it would be like if we sought after those who do not know Christ with just a small fraction of the desire that God has for them. With just a small fraction of the value that God places upon each and every one of them. Then Jesus tells the most well-known the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story, an estate owner's younger son requests his inheritance early, almost as if to say he wishes his father were dead already. His father grants the request. But before long, the son has squandered his entire inheritance, and he's reduced to wishing that he could eat from the pig's trough, an unimaginable state especially for a Jew, considering the uncleanness of swine. But as he is doing so, the text says in Luke 15, verse 17, he came to his senses. He said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is an amazing picture of the love of the father for the prodigal son. We might be so familiar with it that we don't recognize it. He runs out to meet him. A Lord running out to meet a visitor. This was not considered dignified. Was not noble behavior of the time. But he did not care. He runs out to meet him. And he says, Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And later the father states to his other son... We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. If you reflect on this story, you can't help but notice the passionate and joyous love of the father for his prodigal son who returned. The son had forfeited any right to his father's love and sympathy, disowning his father, squandering his inheritance. But when the father saw him, still a long way off, he felt compassion for him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And I know you know this, but we may not reflect on it nearly enough. God is that father. Just as he can be deeply hurt when we turn away from him, he is overjoyed when we come to him even from the pig trough. I can imagine that father waiting for his prodigal son to return, perhaps looking out the window from a tower with a panoramic view of the countryside, hoping for, anticipating the day when he will see a little head bob over the horizon and grow larger and larger until he sees that it is his son returning to him. Even as in Zephaniah 3:17 God proclaims looking forward to that day when he will welcome us home. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He'll rejoice over you with shouts of joy. But you know that God doesn't just wait for us to come to him, right? You know that he is seeking us, seeking us, calling after us. We don't come to him first. We love because he first loved us. One day I was reading in Hebrews chapter 12, and I've read it a number of times, but every time I read the Bible, there's, there's something new. The riches of the Bible are inexhaustible. And it struck me as I was reading Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, "'Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, "'fixing our eyes on Jesus,' the author and perfecter of our faith. And that might be the part that we're more familiar with thinking about. But notice the next part. It says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For what joy? What joy? The joy of saving his people. He looked through the darkness. And for the joy set before him, the text says, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If God values us this much and has given so much for us, what manner of people ought we to be? How should we live? How should we treat other people? 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, Paul writes, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But who... Who can stand in the judgment? You know, so many people among us struggle with just that question. And they sometimes damage themselves and damage others because of their insecurity about the judgment. My friends, bad theology does manifest itself in bad behavior even in the church. We need our people to understand how they are saved by Christ and how they can have assurance in that salvation and recognizing the grace that they have received be abundantly gracious and loving to others. But there's bad news. I'm not good enough. You, I'm sorry to say, are not good enough, right? But there's good news that's much greater than that bad news. Because even though I'm not good enough and you are not good enough, he is good enough. And that is good enough for all of us. In my own power, I can bring nothing of value to God. I cannot touch the moon No matter how hard I try to jump, Peter couldn't walk on water either. But wait, he did, didn't he? He walked on water as long as he was what? Looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As long as he was looking at Jesus, he could walk on water. But as soon as he looks down or looks at himself, he sinks. But if he's looking at Christ, he can do the impossible. So what is the key? The key is the mediation of Christ. Two steps, two points I want to briefly reflect on. First, God gives me and you grace prior to any response prior to anything we do, prior to anything we think, he reaches out to us in grace. And secondly, secondly, Christ's mediation makes up for our deficiencies if we are in Christ by faith. There's a story told of a little boy who visited his grandparents on their farm. And they gave him a slingshot to play with And as he was playing with it, he found that he never seemed to hit whatever he was aiming at, and he was frustrating one day and walking and not not thinking very much. He saw his grandma's pet duck, and without thinking about it, he just let fly, and he hit the duck square in the head and killed it. He was terrified. He didn't know what to do. He just didn't want his grandma to know what he'd done. So in a panic, he hid the duck in a wood pile, only to see that his sister Sally Was watching him. She had seen the whole thing, but she said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Don't you, Johnny? And she whispered to him, Remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help me make supper. But Sally just smiled. And she said, well, that's all right, because Johnny told me he wanted to help. And she whispered again, remember the duck. So Sally went fishing, and Johnny stayed behind. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, he finally couldn't stand it any longer. He went to his grandma and he confessed that he had killed her duck. And she knelt down and she gave him a hug. And she said, Sweetheart, I know. You see, I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing. But I love you and I'm willing to forgive you. But I was wondering just how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. Whatever, whatever it is in your past, whatever sin or shortcoming the enemy keeps throwing in your face, whatever it is, Jesus was standing at the window. And he saw the whole thing. But he loves you. And he has made provision, full and free provision, to forgive you. It is only because of his grace that any of us are here even now. So that is number one. God reaches out to us with grace first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that brings us back to number two. Christ mediation makes up for our deficiencies if we are in Christ by faith. What does that mean? It means that God takes what we offer, as soiled as it is, and Christ adds to it himself. Isn't that good news? Christ takes what we offer and adds to it himself. This was symbolized throughout the Old Testament in the sanctuary system in which priests mediated the acceptability of humans before God. And 1 Peter 2 picks up on this. 1 Peter 2 beginning in verse 4. It speaks of Christ as a living stone which has been rejected by men... Christ makes your offering perfect in the sight of God. In one of, one of her letters, Ellen White writes, Jesus loves his children even if they err. He keeps his eye upon them, and when they do their best, calling upon God for his help, be assured the service will be accepted, although imperfect, Jesus is perfect. Christ's righteousness is imputed unto them. And he will say, take away the filthy garments from him and clothe him with change of raiment. Jesus makes up for our unavoidable deficiencies. Jesus makes up for our unavoidable deficiencies. I am not good enough. You are not good enough. But he is good enough. And that is good enough for all of us. And we are told, we are told that we can be pleasing to God through faith in Christ. In the book of Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips That give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And in Romans 12, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Under this umbrella of divine mercy and divine mediation, God takes pleasure in even the smallest positive response to his love. And do you know what he delights in most? Do you know what he delights in the most? You know, the most loving thing you could do for me is to do something loving for my son. You know what he delights in most? When we love others, when we show God's love to others. This most precious message of the grace of God for us should not make us complacent, but should motivate us to be dispensers of God's love and dispensers of God's grace to everyone around us, to everyone with whom we come into contact. If we truly recognize the unmerited favor and grace that God has bestowed on us, we should respond by being an active, practical blessing to others. You have freely received, therefore freely give. Hebrews 11 tells us again, without faith, it is impossible to please him. But by faith, we are pleasing to God. We can reflect his love. So imagine once again that my son brings me a gift, daddy, for you. Maybe it's an ugly tie. Maybe it's the ugliest tie I've ever seen. But do I say to Joel, my son, this is the ugliest tie I've ever seen. It's not worth anything to me. No, I don't say that at all. In fact, by itself, that tie is of little or no value to me. But the loving father delights in it and prizes it as a treasured possession because it was given to him as a token of his son's love. In much the same way, I can never merit God's love. I have nothing of my own to give him since all that I have has been given to me, however, I can, through faith, and because of Christ's work on my behalf, respond in ways that please God, similar to the way that a human father is pleased when his son brings him a gift which is otherwise worthless. In this way, God truly loves the righteous because those who respond to God by faith are accounted righteous in his sight through the mediation of Christ. I am not good enough. And you are not good enough. But he is good enough. And by faith, that is good enough for all of us.